You could be seated. And we are in Luke 16 again this morning. Luke chapter 16. And today we come to a parable, a parable about life and death and riches and poverty and heaven and hell. It's the parable of the rich man in Lazarus. It's a parable of extremes. It's a vivid parable. It may be familiar to many of us, but regardless, it should be a jarring parable. I gave some time this week to think on how to introduce this parable to you, and I came up short. Any introduction would pale in comparison to the weight of the parable itself. So let's read it, and let's let the story itself and its massive themes, may these grab our attention. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us." And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I've said already that this is a parable, and I do think it's a parable, not a historical event. And that's not just because we're doing a series on parables, and it would be a darn shame to have this in the series if it wasn't a parable. No, I think there are good reasons to think that this is a parable. Now, it is true that Jesus nowhere else gives a personal name in any of the other parables. So that's unusual here. We have a personal name. But I think we'll see that there's a purposeful significance for a name being given in this parable. 
We have good reason to think it's a parable for a couple of reasons. One, it's introduced to us like many parables are introduced, especially in recent context in Luke's gospel. How does our parable begin? There was a rich man, verse 19. How did last week's parable begin? Chapter 16, verse 1. There was a rich man. And then Jesus told the parable of the shrewd manager. Back up one more. Chapter 15, verse 11. There was a man. And then Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son. This is how parables are often introduced. There was a man. Another reason why this is likely a parable, is that it doesn't give us a literal picture of heaven and hell. Elsewhere in the Bible, we don't find heaven and hell parallel to each other, adjacent to one another, somewhat connected but somewhat apart from each other. No, nowhere else in the Bible do we get the idea that people between heaven and hell can see each other or converse with each other. And nowhere else in the Bible do we learn that old father Abraham is somehow in charge of heaven and hell, where he's like refereeing the debates between the citizens of heaven and hell. Oh, don't hear me saying that heaven and hell aren't real because they're here in a parable. No, they are real, but they're described here in an almost dreamlike way. You know how the rules of physics and geography and time don't always apply in your dreams? Well, that's what this is like. It's a parable. And the technical rules don't apply in parables and in this case, they don't apply so that we feel the drama of it, so that we see the irony of it, so that there's this dual scene, split screen happening all the way through. Now, if we follow the chronology of the parable, or even the geographic focus of the story, we find three parts to it, three parts. The focus moves from this life, then to the afterlife, and then the focus moves back to those who are still in this life before death. So first, we see a great contrast in life. A great contrast in life. A great contrast in the lives and the circumstances of two men who share proximity of space and time but that's about all they share. There's a rich man, and he has expensive clothes. He's clothed in purple. Purple in those days was symbolic of wealth because it was expensive to make. These days, you can get on Amazon and buy any color T-shirt you want, in any shade that you want. You might pay a little bit more for a different color, but probably not much. But in these days of the Bible, they didn't have synthetic dyes that are inexpensive. No, it was expensive, costly, and difficult to dye clothes, any color, and some colors more than others. And purple was the most difficult, the most expensive. 
It had to be extracted from a shellfish. And we all know that shellfish can be rather shellfish sometimes. I'm sorry. I promise not to do that in the next service. So this man's clothed in purple. He's decked out in it. He has fine linen, we're told, which is actually a reference to his underwear. It's Egyptian cotton. Even his underwear is fancy. And it says that he dressed in these fancy, expensive clothes habitually. That's what the New American Standard says. Habitually he dressed like this. Every day he dressed like this. This is Downton Abbey stuff. This is where they put on a tux to have some eggs for breakfast. That's this guy. He eats expensive food. We're told he feasted sumptuously every day. And every word there counts, right? He feasted sumptuously. I bet that's a word you didn't use this week. It means richly, abundantly, lots, every day. He lives in constant pleasure. Nothing is denied. So verse 19 just gives us a short list that sums up one man's luxurious living, his extravagance, his pleasure, his ease. And all that sums up his life, his identity, his focus, his time, what's important to him. This is what defines him. He's a rich man. Then there's a poor man in verse 20. And he was laid at the rich man's gate. So he's lame, apparently. He was unable to get himself to the city center where it would be more advantageous to get some alms. No, he was carried by others to the gate of the rich man. You can imagine his friend saying, I can't get you to the city center, but I can drop you off in front of the rich guy's house and surely he's got something. Surely he'll see you and take care of you. Verse 21, he hoped to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Not that he was ever near, literally, the rich man's table. No, that's a saying of the day found elsewhere in the Bible. It refers to someone's leftovers. They're scraps. The stuff that goes in the trash or the stuff they might feed to the neighborhood dogs. And he was covered with sores. So he was ill. He had some sort of internal illness that produced painful external sores. And even the dogs licked his sores, verse 21 says. And I'm not sure whether that's a positive thing or a negative thing. It could be either. I think it could be positive, something like, at least the dogs had compassion on this suffering man while no one else did. Or it could be negative, that he was so desperate and helpless that he couldn't even shoo away wild dogs from licking his wounds. Both are bad situations. He was poor, he was crippled, he was sick and sore, he was hungry and desperate, helpless and alone, seemingly alone. 
This poor man's name was Lazarus. And that name means one whom God helps. One whom God helps. It sure doesn't look like he's one who God has helped. It looks like he should be named something like, where is God now? Or the one whom God has forgotten or something. But even in these first few verses, at just the first introduction to these two characters, we're already given a hint at where the story is going. Lazarus is the one whom God helps despite all appearances to the contrary. And as for the rich man, he's nothing but a rich man. He has no name in the story. As Meg Ryan said and You've Got Mail, he's nothing but a suit, a big purple suit. So that's probably the significance of the poor man being named. We'd expect the rich man to be named in the story. He's the one that the community would know what his name is. We all know the name of important people, don't we? It wasn't long ago that I saw Sam Donaldson at my grocery store. Kids, Sam Donaldson was an old newscaster. He's retired. He lives in New Mexico. His eyebrows are as big as ever. <laughs> I saw him and I said, Sam Donaldson! He said, hello. That was it. <laughs> I once saw Gary Sinise in the Chicago airport, the actor, Gary Sinise. And I said, Gary Sinise. He said, hey, thanks for saying hi. And he kept walking. <laughs> I was thankful I didn't say, Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> or worse, you got legs, which I'm sure other people have said to him, and I bet he's not pleased. But... I knew their names. And we conveniently, I conveniently don't know the names of some of the homeless people that I have repeatedly drive past on my way to work. And that's just how it is. That's typical. That's the point of the inverse in our parable. The poor man is Lazarus. He has a name. In fact, he's known by God. He's the one whom God helps. And then secondly, we come to this. There's a great reversal in death. A great reversal in death. Again, two very different men, very different circumstances, but then both die. We're not told how. It doesn't really matter, does it? They both died. We all die. We're all, apart from the Lord's return, we're all going to die. We may live like we won't die, we may pretend like it's not going to happen to us. We may deceive ourselves into thinking that death is so far off in the future that it's irrelevant for me to think about it now. But that's just the strategy of the ostrich that puts its head in the sand. 
This is why old churches used to have cemeteries on their land. Sure, it's to give proper burial to their congregants, but it's also so that their living congregants would walk past it every time they came to church to be reminded of the shortness of life, the fragility of these lives, to remind them of the inevitability of death and the uncertainty of when. This is why Ecclesiastes says that the day of one's death is actually better than their day of birth. It's because it provides much more clarity about what is most important in our lives. The fact is, we all know that we will die, and we all know that we don't know how or when we will die. But the most important matter is what happens next. What is on the other side? What awaits you? Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed unto men once to die. And after this, the judgment. Now back to the parable, we actually see that death and judgment. The death and judgment of Hebrews 9.27 is playing out right before our eyes in this story. After their death, there is a great reversal in the fortune of these two men. Everything is flipped. If they were before death mirror images of each other, opposites, now the opposites have flipped. The mirror, let's say, turns inside out. The one that was needy, no longer in need. The one who needed nothing, now in great need. One, the beggar, no longer needs to beg. The one who wouldn't help the beggar is now the beggar. The one who suffered, no longer suffers. The one who suffered nothing, now suffers everything. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. In other words, he went to heaven and he was carried by angels to heaven. He was escorted to Abraham's side. What's that mean, Abraham's side or some translations have Abraham's bosom? Well, it's just a metaphor for heaven. It's a picture of celebration and acceptance and fellowship and intimacy. Can you picture Jesus and his disciples the night he was betrayed at the Last Supper? You've seen paintings of this? Perhaps what's coming to mind is the most famous painting. I don't know the, the painter, but the one where they're at a long table and all facing out like they're about to begin a panel discussion for the viewers. You've seen this one? Well, let me tell you, that is not what it looked like. In Jesus' day, there would have been a short, circular table, and those around it would have been leaning on one elbow, staggered-like, almost like dominoes that had fallen down, one on top of each other. They were almost that close. That's why you see in John 21, 
that John, it says, leaned back on Jesus' bosom. I mean, it was just inches away anyway. He He just leaned back. So the overall picture of being at someone's side is one of food and fellowship and intimacy and rest. And Lazarus has been brought to Abraham's side of all people. He is reclining with the great patriarch, the hero of the Old Testament, the father of faith, the friend of God, as he's called in the scriptures. And at his right hand, Lazarus, who used to be a beggar, sick and sore, helpless, and alone. And he is now with Abraham in heaven, at ease, accepted, at peace, celebrating, and eating his fill. Now, this would have been a great surprise to the Pharisees who had been hearing Jesus teach and talk like he has in recent chapters of Luke. Remember from last week that the Pharisees had a theology of money and blessing that was tied to obedience. They said, obey God and you will be blessed financially and materially. So who is blessed by God? How do you know if you're on God's good side? Well, you Just follow the money, as the saying goes. And so a rich man, well, he's obviously blessed by God. Obviously, he's good with God. The rich man, good guy. Poor man with sores. The sores would have made him ceremonially unclean unable to go to the temple to make sacrifices. No one was supposed to touch him when he had sores like that. And so obviously this poor man with these sores is obviously not right with God. Whether he sinned or his parents, who knows, somebody did something, you can see it, you can smell it. So it would have been a great surprise as these Pharisees listened to Jesus and he tells them that the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And it would have been doubly surprising for them to hear, verse 22, that the rich man also died and was buried, verse 23, and he went to Hades and he was in torment. What? Now, what is Hades? Let's get that out of the way. In a couple places in the Bible, Hades can just mean generally the place of the dead. It's not heaven or hell specific. Like in Acts 2, quoting the Old Testament, it says of Jesus that God didn't let him stay in Hades, but raised him from the dead, the place of the dead. But it can also mean the bad place of the dead. Hell, and that's usually what Hades refers to, and certainly that's what it refers to in this parable because it is a place of torment and anguish. And from this place of torment and anguish, there is a desperate request. In torment, the rich man, 
lifted up his eyes, saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham! He's claiming ancestral rights to heaven. Father Abraham! You have many sons. Many sons at Father Abraham. I am one of them. He says, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Now remember, this is a parable. So we don't want to build a whole theology of hell just from the metaphors in a parable. That'd be a mistake. But... We don't want to miss the obvious, and in this parabolic fashion, it's obviously painting a picture of pain and agony. Verse 24 tells us something about the agony of hell, that this man would be in such torment that a drop of water hitting his tongue would bring some measure of relief. But this also shows us something of his stubborn pride. Yeah, there's stubborn pride here, subtly so. You see, even in hell, this man can't shake his sense of superiority. He doesn't repent of his sins, doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't acknowledge how wrong he got it in life before death. He doesn't even address God to plead for mercy. He doesn't address Lazarus to ask for his forgiveness for stepping over him all that time. He asks Abraham to send Lazarus like he's an errand boy, like he's a servant, like this man in hell is somehow the boss. It's subtle, but I I think it's there. There's stubborn pride and superiority and a wrong trust in his ethnicity. And so there's a sobering response that follows. Verse 25, you've had your good things in life, and Lazarus has had bad things, and, and now those are reversed. Now that might sound like It's teaching some sort of strange principle like a charmed life will send you to hell and a hard life will surely get you into heaven. Verse 25 sounds like it's saying that. And we know from elsewhere in the Bible that can't be true. That's not true. And so it doesn't mean that here. So verse 25 instead means that the rich man has already had all the good that he's ever going to have. He's already had his best life now. That's all done. There's no going back. The great reversal has taken place. Verse 26 A great chasm has been fixed so that there's no passing between these two places. Heaven and hell are fixed destinations. There's no going back. 
There's no second chance. There's no purgatory in the Bible. There's no purgatory where we somehow work ourselves out of a so-so kind of place to one day get to heaven. There's heaven, there's hell, and there is a great chasm between, and it is fixed, and there's no passing to or fro, and it remains like that forever, forever. Other parts of the scriptures make clear when they teach on hell that hell is forever. Revelation 14, the smoke goes up forever and ever. 2 Thessalonians 1 calls it eternal destruction. Hebrews 6 refers to it as eternal judgment. It goes on forever and ever. In Matthew 3, Jesus says it's a place where the fire is not quenched. In Mark 9, verse 44, Jesus says it's a place where the worm doesn't die, which is a picture of like an intestinal worm eating someone from the inside, and the worm never dies and never stops. The small book of Jude at the end of our Bibles speaks of the gloom of utter darkness forever. Yes, hell is a place, get this, it's a place that's abandoned by God. 2 Thessalonians 1 says we are judged apart from the presence of God. And yet, Revelation 14 says that we experience the wrath of God in the presence of the Lord and his holy angels. The scariest thing about hell is that he's not there. There's nothing good there. The scariest thing, the scarier thing about hell is that he's there in all his white-hot, holy Judgment. Is there symbolism in some of these descriptions of hell? Not just in our parable, but elsewhere when Jesus is teaching didactically? I think there is. There's probably symbolism in some of this stuff. But, but it's symbolic of something worse than the words and metaphors could possibly describe. If metaphors are used to describe hell... It's because those are the best attempts to describe the indescribable. Just like the descriptions of heaven in Revelation 21 and 22, the word like keeps getting used in those passages. Heaven's like this, and it was like that, and the streets were like gold, and the, the gate was like pearl, and it's like, it's like, it's like, because it's beyond all these things. It's not just like these things. It's beyond comprehension. And so with hell, we shouldn't find any comfort in the fact that the Bible uses some symbolism to describe the horrors of hell. Now some ask, how is this fair? 
How is it fair, for instance, for God to punish a finite number of sins in someone's relatively short life for eternity? You sin for 80 years, you suffer for eternity. Well, yes, but keep in mind that sin is against an infinitely, infinitely holy God. It's cosmic treason. We have all freely joined a rebellion against the Creator that warrants permanent punishment. And who's to say that we stop sinning once we die? Who's to say that it is a finite number of sins that only last 80 years on this planet? This man seemed to keep sinning and keep sinning. Oh yeah, he wanted to get out of the torment. He wanted some soothing, yes. But his haughty superiority just kept exposing itself and exposing itself. Does all this make you feel uncomfortable? Good. That's good. It's not supposed to make you feel warm and fuzzy. Do you know who in the Bible talks about hell more than anyone else? Jesus. The same one who welcomed the children to his lap. The same one who looked on the multitudes and had compassion on them and fed them. And the same one who laid down his life upon that cross. He talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And he talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. If there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to flee, then it is kind of our Jesus. And it is kind of the Bible. And hopefully it's kind of this preacher to talk about the horrors of hell so that you don't end up there. This should get our attention. I hope this shocks us out of the comfortable monotony of our lives. Our lives like ostriches lived with heads in the sand about what is real, what is coming for many of us. The rich man assumed that he was in and good with God, but he was mistaken and eternally mistaken. The problem was not that he was rich. The problem was that he was only rich. That's all that he was. That's all that he had. And he apparently trusted in those riches. He was like, he was like the man in Luke 12 who just kept building bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns and there was no thought of eternity. And he's like the Pharisees with whom Jesus has been interacting in these recent chapters. So remember from last week, look down, chapter 16. Remember in verse 13 and following, Jesus was giving us some 
some principles about money and eternity and life. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And what do we read next? Verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they heard all these things and they ridiculed him. But Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. You may not be tempted to trust in wealth as an indication of your acceptance with God. The Pharisees did. This make-believe rich man certainly did. But you might be tempted to justify yourself in some other way, with some other means. Maybe it's education, or just IQ, or fame, or power, or success, or morality, clean living, or a certain social issue that you're really passionate about. You see, anything that might define us and anything that might function as our Savior is something that can deceive us and keep us from heaven and send us to hell. When you die, and I don't know when and I don't know how, and neither do you, when you die, this will be the only thing that matters what's next, where you're going. There are only two options, and these are fixed and eternal destinations. That's all that matters. When you die, whether you were Democrat or Republican will not matter. Whether you were rich or poor won't matter. What people thought of you won't matter. What they said at your funeral or how many people came to your funeral won't matter. Your religious heritage, kids, your parents' faith, it won't matter when you die. You can't claim that and get in. Your likability your good neighborliness, your success in school or at work. It won't matter. I'm not saying those things don't matter anything. I'm not saying that life doesn't matter, so who cares how you live it. All I'm saying is that none of those things determine where we go after we die, and instead they may actually be self-deceiving decoys that keep us from heaven and send us to hell. Well, we must move on to our third point. It is a grave concern for those still alive. A grave concern for those still alive. Attention turns to those who are still alive. The rich man's five brothers. 
Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. This is the one admirable quality of this guy. He has a concern for the eternal destiny of his brothers. And yet, just alongside that, he still can't shake his pride and superiority. Send Lazarus, he says again, as if he's the boss, as if he calls the shots, as if Lazarus is his messenger boy. Once again, there's no repentance, there's no sorrow, there's no apology to Lazarus, there's no addressing God. I think what he says also betrays a subtle resentment. I think he makes like a, a subtle charge that if only he had been warned before he died, he would have believed. So what my brothers need is a warning they lack information. They haven't been told enough. So send them Lazarus. But that request, too, is denied. Verse 29, Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the Bible, we would say. Moses and the prophets was a way to sum up the whole Old Testament. Moses Prophets, it's our Old Testament. Even in the Old Testament, salvation was not hidden. It was there. They should know the Bible. They have the Bible. They should know what it says about guilt and forgiveness and mercy and a coming Messiah, a suffering servant. But the man in hell interrupts and objects. Verse 30, no, Father Abraham. Yeah, set him straight. Good idea. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So he infers that the Bible is not enough. What they need is a sign. If there was a resurrection, then they would believe the messenger. Oh, really? There was a resurrection already in the gospel accounts. It's recorded in John 11. It's only there, not in Luke, but surely this was known. It was known by Luke's readers. All these stories were oral before they were written down. In John 11, interestingly, there's a resurrection there who happened upon another man named Lazarus. And here's probably another reason for why the guy in our parable gets a name, and that name is Lazarus. Jesus, who's constructing this story, knows it's going to get to the theme of resurrection, and bells should be ringing here. But just because some guy is raised from the dead doesn't mean people believe. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, 
by the way, they're not the same guy. Remember, one is, one is fictitious and one is real and historical. But if we read on in John 11, right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we see many believed in him. But some others didn't. And they brought news of what happened to the Pharisees. And they began plotting together to kill him. They didn't even debate what happened. They knew Lazarus was in the grave four days and he stinketh. There was no denying Lazarus was once dead and is now alive. And they don't care. Some believed, but some said, let's figure out a way to get rid of this guy, to kill him. So there's already been a precedent for what Abraham told the rich man. But he tells him not once, but even a second time. Verse 31, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Of course, Luke doesn't want us to just think of the resurrection of Lazarus here. Even more, he wants us to think of that more important resurrection that's still to come in his story. The resurrection of Jesus. Luke 23 and 24 will record the cruel crucifixion of the Savior and his glorious resurrection. And then in Luke 24... We have Jesus' words to his disciples explaining to them what all this was about. Why all this had to happen just like it happened. And I think Luke in 16, Luke in chapter 16 wants us, the reader, if we've read this more than once, to think about what Jesus said in Luke 24. So turn there if you would. Let me just point out a few verses that use similar language. In Luke 24, the resurrected Christ said to the two men on the road to Emmaus, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Suffer and rise. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then look over to verse 44. Jesus is with a larger group of the disciples, and he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, a different way to categorize the Old Testament, Everything written about me in the Bible must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, thus it is written in the law of Moses and prophets and Psalms that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. 
That's the rest of the story. Jesus did rise from the dead. And some believed because they saw him bodily risen in the flesh with their own eyes. Some believed because they were told that firsthand eyewitness account by those who saw Jesus risen in the flesh. Some believed because they read of that firsthand eyewitness testimony that was not only foretold in the prophets and Moses and the Psalms, but was recorded in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in John, and was preached in the book of Acts and was expounded in Romans and in the other epistles. That's how we believe these days. Whether someone reads it to you, summarizes it for you, or you read it on the pages of a Bible yourself, we have the Bible. The question is, what will we do with it? Some believed in Jesus' day. Many have believed since the time of the resurrection of Jesus. And many, from the first day to today, do not believe. A man was raised from the dead, and they do not believe. They ridicule. They make excuses. They busy themselves with their money or some other savior. Would they believe if Jesus showed up? If they could see the risen Savior? Maybe. Probably not, according to Abraham in the story. What did Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Listen to them. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets. And we can say, and if you won't believe the gospels and the epistles, then you won't believe even if you saw Jesus face to face. If you will not take God at his word, then how can you trust him with your soul, with your destiny, with, with what's on the other side of your inevitable death. Don't wait for a miracle. Don't wait for a sign. He's already given us a sign and so much more than a sign. How do I know that? It's in the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. To entrust your soul to God, to a God who saves from sin and eternal punishment, you have to first trust what he says. And where do you go to find what he says? The Bible. 
By the way, this is what the Bible says. If I can summarize it for you, if you haven't caught on yet, it was very clear in some of the songs we've already sung this morning. It's inferred in passages like Luke 24 that Jesus had to suffer in our place. Suffer for our sins. That's why he died on the cross. But he was raised on the third day. And there is good news for you to hear and for you to believe today before it's too late. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached to all the nations. That's what I'm trying to do right now. What's repentance? It means giving up whatever you were clinging to, holding on to, trusting in, leaning upon whatever was your functional savior. Give up on that or those and you cling to him. You believe. You trust him and him alone. Specifically what he did on that cross in your place rising on the third day, just as he said. Will you today take him at his word? Will you embrace this beautiful exchange that is at the heart of the gospel? We find it in passages like 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, that, well, let me read it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, perfect, spiritually, everything. For your sake, he became poor. He suffered. He humbled himself so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There's that great transaction in metaphorical financial terms for what we need spiritually. Do you think you're poor and you need a rich rescuing savior or I could ask it this way who in the parable do you most identify with you say well I don't have any sores I stopped getting pimples 20 years ago I'm not that poor yeah that poor man is a portrait of what we are all spiritually and the rich man is a good portrait of what we all think we are spiritually rich at ease needing nothing a great reversal will come if you don't have a great reversal come to your life before you die who do you identify with in the parable uh, you might have some good money in the bank and a decent retirement account, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. The man wasn't in hell because he was rich. He was in hell because he was simply rich, only rich. That's his life. Will you give up on whatever you're trusting in today and identify with this poor man so that when you die, angels come for you and they take you to Abraham's bosom Christian having trusted in what the Bible says and, and having believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins let us just keep taking 
taking him at his word. Let's just keep putting the Bible before ourselves. Let's, let's just open it daily. Let's ask for his help as we look into it. Let's gather around it Sunday after Sunday, slowly walking ourselves through a text because he has spoken. It's his word. It's enough to lead us to heaven. May this word be passed on to our kids, to the next generation and the next and the next. And may we take this word into the, to the world, to the nations. Let's tell everyone who will listen what this word has to say about our Savior and eternity and heaven and hell. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for a word so sure as this, so clear as this, so piercing as this, so dividing. We pray by your grace we would fall on the right side of this division and on the right side of eternity. We pray for those who are here who don't yet get it. Perhaps today would be a day of salvation for them. Perhaps today they would believe. Perhaps even now they'd be able to join us in singing of blessed assurance that Jesus is theirs. We pray in his name. Amen.